Tonight we start in the book of Matthew in the New Testament, and um, we'll go through each of the gospel uh, gospels and talk about those um, each for the next four weeks. We'll be studying those, or four of them, of course. And so as we do that tonight and look at it, which is your favorite? Do you have a favorite of the four Gospels? And as we look at these um, and think about all four of these, maybe you'll have a favorite by the time we finish studying these in the next three, four weeks, <laughs> four weeks including tonight. So but anyway, um, what do you like best about your favorite one? What is your, what is your favorite one? What do you like best about it? And so um, as we study these, you'll see, as I've talked about before, and we'll see in these next four weeks, including tonight, that each of these gospel accounts, the word gospel means good news. And so a lot of times people get the word gospel because it's a gospel account of Jesus' life, the good news of his life. Um, sometimes people get that mixed up with the gospel of salvation. And so, um, but nevertheless, it's called the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Luke, the gospel of John. And so it just, the word gospel simply means good news. And so there's more than one gospel in the scripture. Um, not just the four Gospels. There's more than one Gospel. There's a Gospel of Salvation. There's a Gospel that's called the Gospel of the Kingdom. That is a different Gospel than the Gospel of Salvation and Grace of God. Uh, and so we'll kind of actually hit that a little tonight as we go through this, and we'll probably get a, uh, look at it a little at Mark, too, when we get to Mark. So uh, we'll look at, we're going to break down chapter by chapter, and I know if you write notes, this gets to be a lot. Um, if you'd like to take a picture of some of these slides, that might help. Or if you want, instead of writing, because there'll be a lot to write if you take notes. I just want to, I want to have it written out because if you're like me, I like to hear something and see it written. Or if it's an image or a chart, I like to see that. That helps me to take that in. Some people don't like charts or drawings or, or whatever, and that's fine. But to me, that helps. But if, it's a, if there's an outline, if I can see it and hear it, that helps a lot. So if you'd rather take pictures or something like that of the, of the slides, that's up to you. The theme of Matthew is Jesus as the King of the Jews. We have to understand this book, and it will answer a lot of questions, to understand that the perspective of writing about Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew comes from a Jewish perspective. And you have to understand it's still an Old Testament perspective because when you look at it, um, the, God, the New Testament actually doesn't begin until Jesus' resurrection as far as the age in which we live. Because when Jesus ministered on earth, he was still ministering under that Old Testament setup. Um, that's why the Pharisees would come to questions with him about the law. Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it, right? So um, you have to understand that. So it's written from that perspective. And as you look at all four Gospels, um, a good way to explain this or to, to give an analogy is like taking a beautiful jewel, a, a diamond or an emerald or something like that, and holding it up and let the light hit it. And as you turn it, you'll see all these different beautiful colors. It's the same jewel, but you see a different perspective. That's the way the Gospels are written, to give a different perspective about the same person. And they all describe it um, from, from a different angle. Um, just as if you were an eyewitness of a robbery or an eyewitness of, a, of an accident and you were asked to give your perspective. Well, from where you stood, you'd tell what you saw as honestly as you could do it and as clearly as you could do it. Somebody else from a different angle might see a detail that you didn't see and it could be very key. So that's the way it is with the gospel. They're all important even though they have different perspectives. Uh, so we see Jesus as the king of the Jews. There are 28 chapters in the book of, um, book of Matthew. 23 quotes come from the Old Testament in the book of Matthew. It's a lot. Well, you would figure it to be because it is a Jewish book, right? It's a book 
that, that focuses on the Jewish perspective. There are 28 references to the Old Testament. So when you add those two together, there's a lot of Old Testament. So that comes out uh, with uh, almost you know, one of each in almost every chapter. Uh, average it out, it's like one reference in every chapter. So uh, there's, there's a lot uh, repeated or given in there. The key word, as we said in beginning our study, there'll be a key word or a key phrase with each book. Um, the key word would be the word kingdom. And we see Jesus as the king of the Jews in the book of Matthew in these 28 chapters. Roughly the events of Matthew happen, of course, 30 to 33 AD. That's the time of Jesus' ministry. Uh, well, actually, you could back up. It begins actually what we call year zero because it starts with, you know, whenever he's, he's born and then um, it starts out actually with a genealogy. But as far as the details of his ministry, that's 30 to 33 AD. And it wasn't actually written till roughly 20-something years later. Matthew didn't actually write this in, in what we know as a, as a book, as a manuscript, until about 64 to 66 AD. So a number of years passed before the book itself was completed in its writing. Um, I don't know if you watched the, um, the Chosen, but the character in there that plays Levi or Matthew, he's writing all through that, um, all through the episodes in there. You'll see him there writing. So that may or may not have happened, but we know that the book itself was completed about 64 to 66 AD. So let's write off. We're going to take the scenic route on Route 66. So right off, we're going to do that before we even jump into anything. The, the term kingdom of heaven is found 32 times, and it's only found in Matthew. The kingdom of heaven is not found in the other Gospels. It's not found in Paul's letters. It's not even found in the Old Testament, even though it's seen there. The, the term kingdom of heaven, uh, we'll get to in just a moment. So it's unique to the Gospel of Matthew. The term kingdom of God is found five times. It's found more in Mark and Luke than it is in, than it is in Matthew, but it's found five times. So on the scenic route, let's look and see what this is and what it's about before we jump into Matthew, because this is actually some background you need. The term kingdom of heaven, people get that all mixed up and understand this. This will help you with that term. The term kingdom of heaven is not heaven is in God's home where God dwells. The kingdom of heaven is not that. It's not limited to that. Because when you see Jesus describe the kingdom of heaven, several of the parables he uses about the kingdom of heaven, you know it couldn't be something that take pl takes place where God dwells. It couldn't. So it is, it is not God's home. If you want to put it this way, the kingdom of heaven is basically, in its future mostly, will be heaven on earth. You could put it that way. Uh, if you want to describe it that way. But the kingdom of heaven and, and, and heaven where God dwells are not the same thing. Uh, it's not the same as the kingdom of God. Those are different things. Let's go and look at a verse of reference here. Look at chapter 11 of Matthew and verse 12. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but this is background that helps when you look at and read through Matthew on your own and you get some of these parables. and you want Chapter 11 in Matthew and verse 12. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven, notice it's not heaven, it's not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. So the kingdom of heaven is something that can be taken away. It's something that is physical. It's visible. Uh, we can't see God's dwelling in heaven right now, but the kingdom of heaven is something that's visible. And according to that verse, it can be taken by the violent and taken by force. So the kingdom of heaven is a physical, visible kingdom. All right? 
It mostly pertains to Israel. We get to chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, when John the Baptist is preaching, he tells them, repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he's preaching to Israel, to the Jews. And he says, prove that you are, are ready for your Messiah and come down here in the water and get baptized because your Messiah is here. So the Messiah is connected with the kingdom of heaven. Second of all, it's present when the king is present. Chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, and chapter uh, 2 of verse 3, um, it talks about um, the, um, to, to repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when he says that, in their very presence, the king is there. Although at that time he's not king yet. But in verse uh, 2 it says, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then you look at chapter 4. In verse 17, and it says, From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Who's he saying it to? To Israel, to the Jews. If you were here uh, or listened to it on our, on our uh, audio um, a week ago Sunday, I preached a message about signs. And we saw how those signs are about 99% for Israel. It's not for the Gentiles, not even for the church so much. It's for Israel. And so some of the things written in Matthew, the audience you have to understand and remember is Jewish. It's for Israel and it's for that time because their Messiah was there. It ultimately, the kingdom of heaven will ultimately appear in its fullness during the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. And when you read some of the parables that say the, the kingdom of heaven is like unto this, the kingdom of heaven is like unto this, the fulfillment will be when Jesus comes back to set up his millennial reign. The kingdom of God is not the same as the kingdom of heaven. They're two different kingdoms. The kingdom of God is a spiritual, moral, righteous kingdom. You can probably quote this, Matthew 6, 33. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Right? All these things shall be added unto you. So it is a kingdom of spiritual righteousness, not the same as the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes they're mentioned in the same chapter in Matthew, but they're not the same. Romans 14 verse 17 says, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, it's not physical, but righteousness Peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Those are spiritual things. So the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are different. They're not the same. But when you study Matthew, it's very important to understand that. It pertains to born-again people. Jesus said in John 3, verse 3 to 5, Except a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God, right? He cannot enter the kingdom of God. And except a man be born, he cannot see the kingdom of God, except he's born the water of the Spirit. So it the kingdom of God pertains to born-again people, Jew or Gentile, born-again people. It's present also when the king is present. Mark 1, verse 15, we'll see that, Lord willing, next week. When we get to Mark, um, the king uh, comes and says uh, that the kingdom of God is at hand. So when Jesus comes... Uh, the first time, and John the Baptist is preaching, both kingdoms are at hand at the same time. Why? Because that king is there. The Messiah is there. And because he's there, both are there. So it also will appear in its fullness during the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Right now, it's a spiritual kingdom, a moral kingdom, a righteous kingdom that is within you, the Bible says. When you trust Christ as Savior, you're in the kingdom of God. You're part of the kingdom of God. Except a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So it'll be here in its fullness. So that means when Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, will both be at the same time in the king, in the Savior, in the Messiah, in the king. So, um, it's a scenic route. I know we got down to the, to the dirt roads and the sticks. But anyway, 
It is a scenic route. All right, now let's go through our um, chapters and just highlight. If you Again, if you want to take pictures, if you really want to write this, I'm going to go kind of fast. But uh, anyway, let's start. Chapter 1 begins with the genealogy and the birth of Jesus. Remember we said that he, is, uh, he came, uh, or the theme of, of Matthew is Jesus as the king of the Jews. In that very first uh, chapter, it gives his genealogy where Jesus uh, birth, and it traces it all the way back to, guess who? Abraham. Israel, their history, the Jews began with who? Abraham. So it traces it all the way back to him. So Matthew has a genealogy. Mark does not. Luke does. And John does not. And we get to the other books, we'll see this, uh, and hopefully we'll make sense to you. Matthew gives a genealogy because a king needs one to prove he's a king, and he traces him all the way back to Abraham. And we get to Mark. Mark portrays Jesus as a servant. Mark does not give a uh, genealogy. A servant does not need one. Luke presents Jesus as the perfect man, as the son of God and son of man. Jesus being the perfect man as well as God, he would need a genealogy, and it traces him all the way back to Adam, the first man, so just amazing thing, the way this is put together. Isn't it awesome, the way the Bible's put together? And then John, when we get there, it portrays Jesus as the Son of God, as God in the flesh. God does not need a genealogy, so John does not include one. So just a great way to look at that and see. So it begins with his genealogy and his birth. The angel proclaimed his birth, that he'll come to, and um, his name will be Jesus. He'll save his people from their sins. Then the wise men come in chapter 2. In fact, when they come, what is the question they ask? Where is he that is born the king of the Jews, right? So they ask that question. And that's got Herod and all his guys all in a tizzy. And so uh, he, Jesus was about one to two years old because remember he made the command, Herod did, that they destroy all the little babies. And Jesus was in the house, it says, with Mary. Joseph was probably outside working at the time. And so visit from the wise men, chapter 2. Chapter 3, um, re referenced just a moment ago, there's John the Baptist. He's in the wilderness. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Show that you believe that and get down here in the water and be baptized and realize your Messiah is here. And so Jesus is also baptized and his ministry begins. His ministry begins and just as soon as it begins, he's tempted, chapter 4, by the devil. The Bible says there he is in the wilderness. He'd been fasting 40 days and 40 nights. And then here comes the devil tempting him with three temptations. And all three, Jesus is victorious because he quotes Scripture all three times. Um, it is written, it is written, it is written. And then the Bible says that he departed. Uh, the devil departed from him for a season. And so Jesus is tempted there and then also gives, um, uh, begins his ministry, begins a parable there too. Chapters 5 through 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. And people have scratched their heads over the Sermon on the Mount because when you read through that, as you honestly study this, there's some things in there we can't apply now. Well, that's because it's for Israel for that, that time. And a lot of this will come to pass in the millennial reign of Christ. But chapters 5 to 7, um, a lot of that we can't actually fulfill now. If you look in the first several verses of chapter 5, it gives what we call the Beatitudes. Um, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of... Heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We're not going to inherit the earth. Who's going to inherit the earth? Israel will in the millennial reign of Christ. They'll inherit that, the promise that was given to them way, way back under Abraham, 
repeated in David's time, they will receive the land. So um, now some of these things we can apply spiritually uh, because it's good, of course, to be meek. It's good, of course, to mourn and, and to know, you know the times that our hearts should be broken over things. To be poor in spirit. It's good to be all of these things. Uh, certainly good, to, number six, a hunger and thirst after righteousness. Um, that's a good thing to do. And so some of these things we can apply spiritually, but the literal fulfillment uh, was for Israel and will be fulfilled in the millennium. And so um, you know that because verse two says the kingdom, or three, excuse me, the kingdom of heaven. And then you read on further. So um, the Sermon on the Mount is great material in there. A lot of things to study and uh, you can apply some of them spiritually. Uh, chapter six, he gets to the three things that, that God says, if you do them secretly, or Jesus says, if you do them secretly, the father will reward you openly. One of them is fasting. One of them is praying. And one of them is, um, is doing alms or, or good things. Um, now, it's not that we shouldn't do good things, you know, and, and others not see us necessarily or pray and others not hear it necessarily. But he does promise that if we do these things secretly, our father will reward us in open. Why? Because that means that uh, in the, the most private part of our life, the, the father's there and we're, and we're recognizing that. And we're honoring him in that. So and then you get on into chapter seven begins uh, with a lot of people's favorite verse, judge not. That you be not judged. A lot of people like that one. Um, and you have to read and see what it's talking about. It does say that, but you have to see what it's talking about. And then you get to um, you get on towards the end of it, and he talks about false teachers as wolves, sheep in wolves' clothing. And then he talks about the the two men: one that built his house on the sand, one that built his house on the rock. On the and it, it lasted, and the sand did not. Chapter 8, six miracles are performed in chapter 8, and so Jesus' ministry began. And uh, understand, though, this is another side note. I didn't really write on anything on, in here. I meant to just mention it. Matthew is not written necessarily in chronological order. Um, Mark, I think Mark is, and maybe uh, Luke, but Matthew is not necessarily written like event after event after event. And so um, sometimes some of the things maybe happen a little later or included earlier and vice versa. He performed six miracles in chapter 8, six more in chapter 9, and also in chapter 9, he calls out the author of the book of Matthew, Levi, is his other name, and also his name's Matthew. Levi would imply, of course, that he probably was from the tribe of Levi, uh, one of the 12 tribes, and so his name is uh, his name's Matthew. And as you know, he was a tax collector before he started following Jesus. And uh, imagine how some of the other disciples felt about him when they were all... Uh, together, especially if he collected taxes from them. Uh, but anyway, chapter 9 with that. Chapter 10, the 12 are sent out, uh, including Levi or Matthew. Uh, they are sent out to preach the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, not the gospel of the grace of God. They preach the gospel of the kingdom. Why? Because it's shown, made evident by signs, like we talked about a couple of Sunday mornings ago, made evident by the signs that they did, healing. Um, they were able to, um, to heal those that were sick and that was one of the signs that God, that, the, that Jesus gave them as they went out and to uh, perform those miracles that were sent out. Okay, um, that's, that's, that's chapter 12. So, scenic route again. Take another scenic route and look at the gospel of the kingdom. Go into chapter 10, verse 7. Now, when it says the gospel of the kingdom, it's referring to the kingdom of heaven. And chapter 10... And verse 7, and as you go, he tells them, he sends them out to, um, to preach, to heal diseases, to cast out evil spirits, verse 1, verse um, 6, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Not going out to Gentiles yet, 
going to Israel. Why? Because he came into his own, and his own received him not. But he had to come to his own first, and then later on many of them rejected him. Go to the house of Israel, verse 7. As you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The gospel of the kingdom. The gospel means good news, as it does in any any application of gospel. But it meant that the gospel of the kingdom, the king's here. Receive him as your king. Receive him as your Messiah and your Savior because he's here. And so they were gone. They were sent out and and, uh, went to preach that very message, the kingdom of God. All right, let's go back from our scenic route and go back to our chapters. Chapter 11, we see uh, disciples of John. In fact, uh, there were uh, one or two disciples of of Jesus that had been disciples of John. But there are disciples of John, and uh, they asked Jesus some questions and then he gives a very famous invitation at the end of chapter 11, come unto, you, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Uh, you shall find uh, rest unto your souls. Chapter 12, this is the first place in uh, Matthew where Jesus gets tangled up with the Pharisees and some of their questions. And uh, he talks to them there in chapter 12. They have some questions about um, some of the things from the law. Then in chapter 13, there's a series of parables about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like unto, and he'll give, uh, he gives several parables in that one chapter. It's a pretty long chapter uh, comparing the kingdom of heaven to this and to that. And again, when you read that and you understand that it's not the same as heaven where God lives and it's not the same as the kingdom of God, it makes a lot more sense when you read those parables. I'll be honest with you, some of those parables in there still, I have my head, I scratch my head over some of them. I'm not exactly sure. Uh, there's some real difficult ones in there to understand, but nevertheless, they're there. One of them he uses, the kingdom of heaven is likened to the sower with the seed. Well, he uses the same one in Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel when he talks about the kingdom of God. So sometimes the parables can be interchangeable, but the kingdoms themselves are different. John 14, or excuse me, Matthew 14, jumping ahead three books. John is martyred in uh, chapter 14. He's beheaded um, by, uh, under Herod's, uh, after Herod's command. Jesus feeds the 5,000 uh, the, in the wilderness there, in the, the side of the, the hill or in the wilderness there. And then he calms the sea at the end of chapter 14, same time when Peter uh, ends up walking on the water. And uh, again, give it to Peter. He at least had the, the courage enough to step out. Chapter 15, Jesus gets tangled up with some of the religious, religious leaders again. And then he heals some folks in chapter 15. Then he feeds the 4,000. So he feeds the 5,000 chapter 14, feeds the 4,000 chapter 15. And uh, there's two different feedings. And I think um, Luke has both of those also. I think he includes both of those feedings of the 5,000. I had 4,500 the first time. <laughs> <laughs> then he confronts the Pharisees yet again. And after that, Jesus, he's, he's, uh, he hears what they have to say. And then so he asks his disciples, who do you say that I, the Son of Man, am? Well, some say you're one of the prophets like Elijah or Jeremiah. He said, but who do you say? One of the greatest questions in the Bible, especially in the Gospels, who do you say that I am? That's a question that everybody at some point in their life will, will uh, have to ask themselves, who do I really say that Jesus is? Peter has that wonderful confession he makes. We'll look at this in a little more detail in a little bit. Thou art the Christ the son of the living God. And so Peter, you got to, you know, he had his faults, but you got to give it to the man. You know, Peter, he was, he was honest in, in talking with Jesus. And he said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. He said, blessed are you because flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, Peter, my father, which is in heaven, revealed that to you. So 
a great confession by Peter. Up, oh, scenic route again. Let's take the scenic route. He said in chapter 16 and verse 18, he said, I will build my church. He didn't say, I'm going to build your church, even though when someone builds a church, they want the Lord to be in it, of course. He didn't say, you'll build my church, though, in a sense, when you build it, you're doing it for the glory of God. But ultimately, he says, I will build my church because the church is more than boards and concrete and chairs and all the things that we need. It's more than that. Church is people. In Ephesians 5.25, Paul says that Christ loved the church and he gave himself for it. And so he said, I will build my church. And that, of course, verse 18 was based upon Peter's confession in chapter 16 and verse 16 where he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus is the rock, not Peter. He said, because of that, what you said, Peter, uh, on this rock, on himself, he says, I will build my church. He wasn't building on Peter. Peter's not the rock. Jesus is. And so uh, that confession, though, that Peter said that he's the Christ, the Son of the living God, that's the rock on which he builds his church. All right, go off of that um, scenic route and go back to chapter 17. Chapter 17 is uh, packed with, with a lot in there. It's, it's got the, uh, starts out with the um, Jesus and Peter and James and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. And while he's up there, and the Bible says his raiment turns white as snow, his face begins to shine. He, uh, he's there on the Mount of Transfiguration. And just for a small moment, he is uh, in what we would later know as his glorified body for just a short amount of time, showing his glory forth, and Peter, James, and John saw it. While he's there, there appeared Moses and Elijah. Uh, and we, in fact, we mentioned that last week when we ended out Malachi. Uh, there appeared Moses and Elijah there on the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses representing the law uh, of Israel, the law of the Jews, and uh, Elijah representing the prophets. And so uh, they were there on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. Then we see a possessed boy in chapter 17. Jesus heals and, and uh, casts the, uh, the unclean spirits out of him. Then he does a tax miracle. He says, Peter, time to pay tax. And I said, Lord, I don't have anything. He said, Peter, go fishing. I love that passage. That is great. I preached that a couple times here over the years. He says, go fishing. He said, whatever you get, bring up with the hook. He said, get, reach in his mouth and that'll pay our taxes. And so he goes fishing and they used hooks then. Used, and used a hook, hooked that fish. I mean, Peter was a commercial fisherman. He'd done it all his life. So he, he pulls in a fish that he may have never seen anything like that before. There's money in it and they pay their taxes. One of my favorite things in Matthew. I love that. Then uh, chapter 18, he invites little children, come unto me, uh, and, and says, um, he says in chapter 18, if anyone offend one of these little children, um, he said, it's better that a millstone be hanged around their neck. Um, I mentioned this, I think, uh, at least I, I, I had it, I, th I think, in some of the email um, um, articles that I sent. I don't know how many of you had a chance to see The uh, uh, Sound of Freedom. That is a powerful movie. And uh, if you can take that, um, I mean, it's not anything really, you know, that, that's uh, this graphic or anything, but it talks about the trafficking going on. And America is the leading nation of child uh, sex trafficking in the world. But um, I think of that because one of the verses quoted in there was it's better to have a millstone tied about their neck than to offend one of these little ones. And so um, Jesus 
uh, takes that very seriously. Then he talks about some church conduct in chapter 18. If your brother uh, has something trespassed against you, go to him alone and, and make sure you get it right. Then he says, and there also were two or three gathered together uh, in my name, there, and I'm right there in the midst. But he uses the word church there in chapter 18. Used it in 16, used it in 18, and, and didn't use it anymore in, in the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, very little in the Gospels is the word church found. It didn't found until the book of Acts. Then there's a debt parable that Jesus gives. He compares being in debt to uh, not forgiving someone at the uh, last uh, about oh, 10, 12 verses or so of uh, Matthew 18, the parable that he gives. Chapter 19, uh, as a question asked by the Pharisees about uh, marriage, about divorce, he answers that question there. And then again, mentions little children to come unto him. And then the rich young ruler at the end of that chapter is the one that says, you know, what must I do? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Chapter 20 gives a parable of the vineyard and the workers, uh, those that came, uh, that were there all day, and those that came the very last part, the last hour of the day, and that they got the same pay. And he explains that in the parable. And then uh, James and John are found in chapter 20. They want to sit one on either side of Jesus in, the, in his kingdom. <laughs> And so, you know, they don't get it until, you know, while they're here, at least here on earth, they just don't get it um, until after he's risen from the dead, then they get it. In fact, their mother comes and says, I want my boys on either side of you in the kingdom. Well, you know, would you do that? And he said, do you realize what suffering is coming? You know, and so that might have kind of been a very sobering thought for them. And then Jesus heals a blind, two blind men, actually, at the end of uh, chapter 20. Chapter 21 is... is, is uh, from this point on, it's pretty much chronological from here on especially. So it's getting to be the end of his ministry before his crucifixion. 21 is Palm Sunday where he goes into the city that waved the palm branches and then he cleanses the temple. He does it twice uh, during his ministry, the early part of his ministry and does it again at the end. Um, he says that the first time when he comes through, and that's recorded in John 2. I'm trying to think there's somewhere else. He, he comes through and he says... Uh, my father's house, uh, you made a den of thieves. He says, you're, uh, he, says um, he, he talks about the father's house there. Then this time he says, your house is left unto you desolate. So he tells them the temple, I think what he's saying to them is, is the one that's really important is, is it's going to be desolate now. I'm going to be gone. And so he makes a point by not only cleansing the temple, but what the temple is all about, about worship. Then he curses the fig tree at the end of the day and... Um, uh, as on that Palm Sunday, and, and then there's do what now? I don't get that one. You say you don't get. Um, well, part of that has to do with prophecy, and and the fig tree in Scripture is a is a symbol of Israel's uh, national life. The olive tree, I think, is their spiritual life. If I'm getting this right, and the fig tree is their national life. Um, if I remember right, I'll have to I'll have to look that up for you, Barbara. Um, then you get chapter 22, there's the parable of the feast where he says, go in and bring them in. Go in and bring them in. Uh, he talks about, you know, the um, uh, invite in from the, the hedges and highways, bring them all in. Then he silences the leaders in chapter 22. Then he has one last tangle with the Pharisees in chapter 23, and he gives them quite a dressing down. He calls them a bunch of snakes. He said they're white as sepulchers, which is an empty tomb. It's white on the outside. On the inside, they're just full of dead man's bones. Boy, he really rakes them over the coals. Why? Because he's mean? No, because he tells them, you are keeping others from coming into the kingdom yourself by the way that you're not, not really adhering to the law like you say you are. 
Then he weeps over Jerusalem. Jerusalem, oh, he said, if, as, as a hen gathers her chicks, I would, I would have gathered you to myself, but you would not. Now, were there individuals that, that, that believed on him? Sure there were. But as a, as a city, remember the king was coming to the kingdom for the kingdom. He was coming to tell them the kingdom was at hand, and they didn't receive him. Instead, he goes to the cross. Chapter 24 and 25 is what's called the Olivet Discourse because it was on the Mount of Olives. And these two chapters deal with prophecy. Chapter 24, we looked at, um, I think when we studied Zechariah the other week, uh, we looked a little bit at chapter 24. That's what the great chapter in Matthew about the tribulation and the events that will happen there and how it ties into the book of Revelation. Uh, and then chapter 25 is about Jesus coming back, but there are several parables in chapter 25 about his return. And so those two chapters together are called the Olivet Discourse because he, he does it from the Mount of, he teaches it from the Mount of Olives, and then also he's going to one day come back to the Mount of Olives when he comes back the second time. Uh, and so with that in mind, Israel during the tribulation is chapter 24, as I mentioned, and then parables concerning his second coming, chapter 25. Chapter 26 is what we call the Last Supper. And then when Paul mentions it, we also call it the Lord's Supper. We call it communion, uh, same thing. Uh, Last Supper, we're, by the way, that's Sunday. We're observing that Sunday. Uh, Last Supper and then um, Gethsemane. He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And uh, his disciples fall asleep, you remember. And he says, could you not pray with me, watch with me one hour? Then he's betrayed by Judas. And then he's arrested, of course, and then deserted by everyone. And then during the course of the night on into the morning are the mock trials. And then his crucifixion, um, late morning that day, he's crucified and on the cross at about noon and um, dies for you and for me on chapter 27. Then the great chapter 28 of resurrection where he rose from the dead. And then after he's risen from the dead, um, Matthew doesn't record, again, what some of the others do. John gives us information on two Sundays between, right? So Resurrection Sunday, we call Easter Resurrection Sunday. He's one week later, he comes back and appears to them. Um, Judas, of course, not being there, but Thomas wasn't there the first time. Eight days later, he is. And then Jesus is on the earth teaching them for another 30-something days. And then according to Acts chapter 1, uh, after 40 days, that is from the time he rises from the dead till that time in chapter 1 of Acts where he ascends, he's on earth for teaching them things pertaining to the kingdom of, guess what? God, not the kingdom of heaven. Because their chance for the kingdom of heaven, they lost out. They crucified their king, their Messiah, their Savior. And so he talks to them about the kingdom of God in Acts chapter 1, the spiritual kingdom, moral kingdom, righteous kingdom. And, and then that's the Great Commission. So at the end of chapter 28, um, it actually is you know, that 40th day when he ascends back into heaven. He gives them that Great Commission, go into all the world, preach the gospel, uh, go into all the world, and, and uh, teach all nations. Uh, and Matthew's how he says it. He's not here, for he's risen as he said. Uh, Matthew 28, verse 6, probably the greatest verse in, in Matthew and one of the greatest, of course, greatest in the New Testament for us. He is risen as he said. Tomb's empty. He's not there. Uh, all the other world's uh, religions, leaders, they're all, the religious leaders are all there. He's not. Uh, let's back up a little bit and look at some mileage and efficiency. So Matthew 23, verse 35, Jesus gives what we, what we call the canon. It just simply means the inclusion of the books of the Old Testament. Matthew 23, and uh, let's see, I believe Luke records this too. 
They're the only two Gospels that record this. Yeah, Luke 11 records this. We'll probably mention this when we study Luke also. Matthew 23, 35. That upon you may come all the... He's talking to the scribes there in verse um, 34 and the um, religious Pharisees. But anyway, he says, That upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, son of Barachias, whom you slew between the temple and the altar. And that account is... um, Well, uh, Abel, of course, is the book of Genesis. Abel is found in Genesis 4, verse 8, where he's slain. His blood shed, he's slain by his brother. And then Zechariah is in, um, I'm sorry, I misspelled that. It should be an A, Zechariah. should be an A there, not an E in Zechariah. Uh, it should be Zechariah. In 2 Chronicles 24, verse 21, or 20 to 21, he is slain there. And so he gives us the order of the Old Testament books here. Now, we're going to look at it in Hebrew order. We talked about this before, uh, but we'll look at the Hebrew order and, uh, and, and compare it. So the order of the Old Testament starts in Genesis, and for our purposes tonight, we'll get to in a moment, ends at Second Chronicles. Now, that's time-wise. And we'll see that in a minute. What does that mean? That means that once that book was written, um, there's nothing else that was written until Matthew that is Scripture. The books that were written in those 400 years are spurious. They're not, they're not Scripture. They may be historically accurate. Um, some of them are included in, in Roman Catholic Bible, and some of the, the Protestants have, uh, have some of the books. The, um, there's one that's a variation from Daniel. I'm trying to think of the name of that book. Um, then there's one called Ecclesiasticus, and people get it mixed up with Ecclesiastes. Not the same book. Um, it's, it's one of the books that's not Scripture but was written during that period of time. Now, as far as history, those books may be fine, but as far as Scripture, they're not. So he gives the link. So when it says Abel to Zacharias or Genesis to Second Chronicles, why, do we, why is that important? I don't know if you can see this from where you are, but, of course, the law, Genesis being the first book, and you see how the books are divided up. I'm not sure how much you can see from that distance, but it gives the books of the law, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Then it gives the... Um, they call them the former prophets and the latter prophets. Joshua judges 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings to us are what we call history books, Old Testament history. So, but they call them prophets, and that's fine. Then the latter prophets they call are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the minor prophets. They have divided what they call the pre-exilic writings, that is before they go into exile, before they go to Babylon. Okay, Psalms is up here, and then Job, Proverbs, Ruth, Song of Solomon, and Ecclesiastes fall under that. But what they call post-exilic, that's when they're either in exile or after they get exiled from Babylon, after they leave Babylon. We talked about in the last few books in our study, Lamentations, Esther, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, First and Second Chronicles. So the order of books in the Old Testament, they have the same number. They have um, um, uh, 39 just like we do, but they're in a different order. Theirs ends with Second Chronicles, Ours ends with Malachi. Now, the time frame of Malachi and 2 Chronicles is about the same. They just categorize theirs different. But the dates, you know, it's, it's the same dates, of course, just like for us. But they end theirs with 2 Chronicles. And the very end of 2 Chronicles, that last chapter, that last verse, is written for them to come back to the land. Isn't that an interesting way for their Old Testament? For, well, they don't have a New Testament. Isn't that an interesting way for their Bible to end is to come back to the land? 
God didn't do that by accident. That's not by accident. He did that on purpose because they need to go back to the land because one day they will be back and uh, during the tribulation. So look at a little tune-up from Matthew. Matthew 6.33, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That's a great verse to memorize. You probably have. We sing it sometimes uh, on Sunday morning, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Matthew 11, verse 20 to 30, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Um, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. You should find rest into your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Um, chapter 12. I'm turn, let me turn there. Chapter 12. Um, this is really neat and very practical, what he says here. Chapter 12. Um, we're looking at verse 50, but verse 46 to 49, he gets a visit from his mother, Mary, and from his brothers. Um, they're standing outside where, he's, where he is at the time where he'd been teaching, and they wanted to see him according to verse 46. And in verse 47, they say, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren are here to see you. Um, then he says something interesting in verse 48. Um, who is my mother and who are my brethren? He stretched forth his hands toward his disciples. Behold, my mother and my brethren. What did he mean by that? Look at verse 50. And this promise is for you and me. This is an invitation for us to draw close to our Savior, to, to live for Him, to walk with Him daily. Verse 50. For whosoever shall do the will of my Father. I love those whosoever's because that includes us. There's an old hymn that used to go, whosoever surely meaneth me. Whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same as my brother and sister and mother. Although earthly he had all those. He had a mother and at least two sisters and brothers. And four brothers, although he had all those earthly, what he's saying is, is if you do the will of my father, you, we have a closeness. We have an intimacy because you do the will of my father. You're close to me as my own mother, as my sisters, as my brothers. I love that verse. And in chapter 16, verse 15, whom say ye that I am? That's, we talked about that with Peter, uh, with Peter answering a while ago. In chapter 24, 35, verse 35, when he's talking about the tribulation, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. He gives us that promise. We always have his word. In Matthew's gospel, we see Jesus. Of course, he's on every page, but we see him especially in chapter 1, verse 2. No, it didn't. That should be 25. I'm sorry. I didn't put the 5 there. 125. That's what happens when you copy and paste, Barry. Jesus, for he shall, they'll call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Chapter 2, verse 2, as we talked about, it's called the King of the Jews by the wise men. And then he's the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's found all through there. And then the home address, I just put the same verses for the, uh, for the tune-up. Just the same verses. Great verses to memorize as your, as your home address. Uh, Matthew 6, 33. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28-30. Matthew 12, 50, doing the will of the Father. Matthew 16, 15, whom say ye that I am? And then Matthew 24, 35, my word shall not pass away. So, yep, sure will, sure will. So that's where we'll end tonight. We're going to have any comments or input or questions or anything. There's a lot to cover, Matthew, but I knew you'd probably be more familiar with it, of course, than the others, and probably things will hopefully stick a little better. Denise, you had a question? I really like the I'll probably do that in all of them. I'll probably with all of them, probably throughout the even probably all the New Testament actually, but especially the Gospels, because like I said, you know, like we said, they each one gives this different perspective, and there are things in there to highlight that the others don't give. Like for example, John, he's over and over believe faith, over and over believe faith, believe faith, 
all through the Gospel of John. And when you, end, when you look at the end of the Gospel of John, it says these are written, that mean, you may know that Jesus is the Christ. Well, the others are written for that too. But John is especially written, it's what we would call the evangelistic gospel. It's the, it's, I mean, yeah, gospel, the writing, to get the gospel to people to understand that Jesus came, uh, you know, wants them to believe on him all through. So we'll probably hit some scenic routes like that and others too. Uh, Denise, good point. So, all right. Anything else? Yes, ma'am. So the Catholics believe that that Peter mm. was the first pope and he right. was the rock. Right. Is that just a misinterpretation it of is. scripture we looked at? It is. Uh, Peter, he has three names. He's Simon, he's Peter, and he's got another name that Jesus gives him there, in fact. See, he calls him Cephas. And Paul uses that name in uh, 1 Corinthians when he talks about he was seen of the twelve and names him named Cephas as Peter. Um, so the word Peter and Cephas both mean a stone. And so it's, it's kind of a play on words in a way, um, but it was no, I don't think it was any accident that his name was Peter or Cephas as a stone. Uh, Jesus is called a living stone. In fact, he's called the chief cornerstone in the book of uh, Ephesians, but he's also called the rock. And the Old Testament reference to, one of the Old Testament references to him is the rock. And so he says, upon this rock, and he's talking about himself, but he's also talking about the confession that Peter made that he's the Christ. It's, it's not about Peter. It's because of who he was talking about. And that's why he says, upon this rock, he said, Blessed are you, Simon. You know, the, the God's real, the Father's revealed that to you, not flesh and blood. And he says, upon this rock, talking about himself and the confession Peter had that he was the rock. Um, so, yeah, the Catholic tradition makes that, they, they really twist that and make Peter first pope. But there's a lot of problems with that. One thing, popes were not to be married and Peter had a wife. So, there's one problem there. So, um, anyway. Um, in fact, the other thing, we got a minute. Go back to go back to chapter 16. We've, um, the other thing that's kind of embarrassing about that, about thinking that Peter was the one they built a church on or that he was the first pope. Um, chapter 16, verse 16, Peter answered, said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered, said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar the word bar means son of. Simon Bar-Jonah, his father's name apparently was Jonah or Jonas. For flesh and blood hath not revealed unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. I say unto thee, thou art Peter, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I'll give thee the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven. Not heaven and not God. So this is somehow how Peter, when you end up dying, going to the gates, you see Peter, I get it. You're right. I think that's where they get it. I think that's where they get it. But now this kingdom of heaven, not, not heaven. But look what he says... Um, Skip down to verse 21. He began to talk about his suffering, the chief priests and scribes, that he'd be killed. Verse 22. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. Now, he probably had a good motive for what he said, but look what Jesus says in verse 23. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me. That's rough. If the first pope was Peter, he also got called Satan. So you can preach on that for a while. But anyway, um, get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me. So the same man that, he was saved man. He believed that Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God. The same man says the wrong thing and Jesus says, get behind me. He's not calling Peter Satan so much. He's saying Satan is the one that put that in your mind and heart. I mean, uh, I've got to suffer, Peter. You know, and, and so uh, what he's saying is, um, you know, don't say that, Peter. I've got to go to the cross. But here he was just a few verses earlier making that confession that Jesus is the Christ. So anyway, just kind of puts in a predicament whenever you look at that and they think that that's the, 
that, that Peter's the first pope or that he's the rock on the church. But he's not. That's Jesus. So, good question. Anything else? Well, the New Testament will probably be a little more fun because you're probably more familiar with it and you'll be able to maybe uh, get on it. But I enjoyed that Old Testament, especially those prophets. Man, I tell you, I had to dig a lot, and uh, I enjoyed that. I learned a lot. I still got a lot that I'm scratching my head over, but there's a lot in those Old Testament prophets. I really, really enjoyed studying those. But the, uh, the New Testament, the Gospels are going to be a lot of fun, I think, like this. Mark and Luke and John will all be a lot of fun, too. All right, let's stand and close in prayer and dismiss and head home. Lord, we thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. I thank you for our Savior. And as Matthew's Gospel, unique as the other three, um, gives this perspective on our Savior. We know, Lord, that even with that emphasis, we still see the verses in there, places that talk about salvation. We see the fact that He went to the cross for us and the fact that He rose the third day, uh, the fact that, that He uh, gave His disciples the commission to go and, and take the gospel everywhere. And it's because of that that we're sitting here today. Somebody got the gospel to somebody and somebody to somebody else, and that chain of grace made its way all the way to us, Lord. What a beautiful thought. And we're grateful for that. And thank you for the power of the gospel. And we thank you for the time to study tonight in Matthew. And I pray that you'll be with us as we go through the week and, and maybe read ahead in, in Mark's gospel and look forward to, uh, to what we learned there. Thank you for your word and thank you that it'll never pass away. I pray that you'll keep us safe as we leave from here tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.